0: An Ansett New Zealand flight is on its way from one part of the North Island to another when something goes wrong. What caused this flight to crash so close to landing?
1: Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
2: I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy.
1: Sorry if I sound a little bit nasally today. I'm dealing with a sinus infection, I'm pretty sure. It's going around. It's so much fun. And there's also a cat.
0: Fun fact. There's a cat.
1: So that's happening, too.
0: Thank you to Sherry for increasing your patronage. Yes, thank you. We high-key appreciate it.
2: Thanks. Uh, Anyone else?
0: Nope, that's it. <laughs> I don't
1: think anything else has changed recently. Nope. Thank you for all the comments and emails and everything we've been getting. Oh lord, there's been a lot and stories. Oh my god, we okay. got stories. Don't, don't
0: say any more stories. <laughs> I'm sorry, I said anything. You can start
1: sending in stories for the next couple of months because yeah. now we're we're covered for like the next two. Yeah.
2: So. Yeah. So we will be recording a listeners episode with the like 14 stories we have or some
1: <laughs> like that. We might split it up. I'm thinking we got to split that up.
0: I think 10s probably or nine, so each of us get threes again. Yeah, one.
1: something like that.
0: But when it gets longer than an hour, it's it's a lot. So it is. But thank you for sending them. But stop sending them. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Like send them in like for we'll,
1: future stuff. But I love that we're getting lots of engagement. It's great. I've you seen have,
0: it. I'm gonna do spooky stories again for October. Yes. I like those. I, like I spooky love stories. spooky stories. Can we do spooky stories all year? I mean, y- you can send in spooky stories whenever you want, but it's getting to be spooky season. It is so. getting to be spooky season.
2: It's spooky season. Epooky.
0: Epooky. So, you may send in stories you have of the ipuki.
1: <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> Let's
0: see what else. Is there anything else?
2: Uh, Merchant ducts are getting sent out regularly now.
1: Yes. They should be. So, so Yes, we actually have the help for that.
2: If we suck at it, let us know.
1: We are up to date currently. If you haven't received something... By the time you're hearing this, you something should, broke. you should send us a message somewhere. So Unless you joined
0: know. in the last two weeks, because we or last week, I guess, because this is a week before this comes out. But yes. If you joined in the last week, don't expect to get anything yet.
1: <laughs> right.
0: But other than that, everyone should have their merch. So if you have not received it, it might have gotten sent back. We might have done a goof up on your address or something. So let us know.
1: Right.
2: We have a new patron, so thank you to our new patron. Thanks. Discalked.
0: Thank you. Thank you. We clearly weren't paying attention. To be fair, we got an influx of emails and stuff, and so I, th- I probably got Oh my lost. God, we <laughs> got buried. We've had
1: so much this week. So much. Which I like. It's great. It's just... I've seen a lot of new names and such coming through the inbox, which is great because that tells me that we have a lot of new and avid listeners.
0: Yes. So thank Woo-hoo. you very much. Thanks. That being said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today,
1: we are covering Ansett New Zealand Flight 703.
2: Thanks to... Thanks to Brett for recommending this episode. Thank you. He also has another one in two weeks. Great. So cool. Perfect. And the last one was his too. Yep. Woohoo. So some people get streaks like this. Yes. Chris is notorious.
1: Yes, very much so.
2: Well,
0: it's like if people send us emails or something that have a list of stuff, a bunch.
1: we'll put them in. We're just going to throw them in at the bottom. All so. at the same
0: time. <laughs> yeah. So there'll be probably several weeks for several people. Yeah. Several.
1: Yeah, they have done which is fine. Many in a row. by yep. the way,
0: if you have multiple you'd like to record yep. or you'd like to hear, that's more than fine.
1: That's how we inadvertently did a Swiss streak. Yes. Because we did a bunch of episodes in Switzerland. Thank you to our, our patron, patron
0: in Switzerland.
1: Yeah. Anyways, this accident occurred on june ninth of nineteen ninety five. This is a dash eight one hundred tail number Zulu Kilo Dash November Echo Yankee. This is a flight from Auckland in New Zealand to Palmerston, New Zealand. North in New Zealand. Okay. Both are on the northern island in New Zealand. Okay. If you know New Zealand, you'll know what I'm talking about.
0: I don't. So thank you. It's okay. It north Northern New
2: Zealand.
1: There are two islands, in New Zealand, and both of these are on the northern one, the smaller one.
2: Okay, mm-hmm. cool. So it's not a long flight.
1: No, Captain. For this flight is Norman Southern. He is. It, it's spelt kind of strange. Like it's not Southern. It's Sotherin. Southerin. <laughs> it's S-O-T-H-E-R-A-N. So oh. it's Southerin. It's S O T H E R A
2: N. So it's Southerin. Southern.
1: But they said Southern in the episode, so you know.
2: Yes, but Air it's Disasters great. episodes are the epitome of accuracy. Yes, yeah, so accurate. I'm, I'll. I will be talking about that. <laughs> Spoiler <laughs> alert! It Spider happens alert. every episode. It
1: does <laughs>
0: every time. There's an episode
1: for. That's okay. That's why we do what we do. He was forty years old at the time. He had seven thousand seven hundred and sixty-five hours total of which 273 were on the Dash 8. Relatively new to the Dash 8. The first officer was Barry Brown. He was 33 years old. At the time, he had 6,460 hours total, of which 341 hours were on the Dash 8. So he actually had more hours on the Dash 8, but about 1,300 less hours overall. In Auckland, the 18 passengers and three crew boarded the aircraft for the roughly hour-long flight to Palmerston North. The captain was to be the pilot flying, while the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring for this flight. At 8.17 a.m. local time, the flight departed Auckland as scheduled. The flight climbed to cruising altitude normally, and the crew's flight was carried out normally. As they began their descent to Palmerston North, the flight crew briefed on the VOR DME approach to runway 07, as this was their preferred approach for the airport. So, we've talked about VOR DMEs before, but this is a non-precision approach. Because it's a step down approach, basically. Mm-hmm. So it gives you targets on the way in and it uses the VOR and your distance measuring equipment, hence the DME. So the VOR at the airport, it gives you distance from that VOR while you're on the approach on a certain course.
2: And the VOR gives you lateral guidance. And then you have set instructions of, you have to be at this altitude at 15 miles out. You have to be at this altitude 12 miles out. Right.
1: So you use the DME, the... Distance the, measuring equipment. Right. The DME. So while you're using the DME for your horizontal part of the approach, yeah, or your lateral approach, you are also using the DME for your vertical, because based on how far away you are, that tells you at what altitude you you're
2: DME supposed twice. to be. You so, said DME twice. Yeah. So You said while you're using the DME for your...
1: Lateral. Yep. You're also supposed to be using it for your vertical, because at a certain distance away on the distance measuring equipment, you're supposed to be at a certain altitude.
2: No, you said it for left to right. You said use DME for left to right. Oh, I yeah. didn't
1: hear that. Uh, no, I did. Oh, so you're talking like... Uh, that's not what I was talking about. I was talking about distance from the airport. You I, also use it for... You use the VOR for i know, left I know, but to I'm, right.
2: say- I'm saying you misspoke, so you might want to say it again.
1: Not really. I, I, I was taking what I was... saying.
2: I understood what he said, so
1: so that you use the VOR for your left to right you use the DME for your distance too and you use the DME for your distance above your altitude on the approach so because just, the chart tells you on the at what point along your approach you're supposed to be at what altitude
0: yeah you're it's you're supposed to monitor your altitude basically right. so if you know you're at a certain altitude at a certain um, miles away from the DME right. you realize that okay we got to this point we need to be at this point at this we need to you know, descend this much time to get there at this point, all that stuff. So it's not like a glide slope where a glide slope will get you down to the runway. It's basically like, here's the steps you need to take so eventually you'll get to the runway.
1: It gives you a rough glide slope, but it's not accurate. It's an at or above altitude. Anyway, so they were trying to set up for the runway 07 VOR DME. A short time later, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to perform the VOR DME approach to runway 25 instead, due to departing traffic interfering with the runway 07 approach. So this is opposite ends of the same runway. It's a okay. one-runway airport. So if they were trying to do the approach on runway zero 07, but airplanes are taking off on 2 five, Oh, that's a problem. head head-to-head. a little, so,
0: little bit of a... oops.
1: Yeah, air traffic control was like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> we're, we're just going to do 2-5.
0: You can't do that. Yeah.
1: The area was entirely under overcast conditions at the time, and much of their descent and initial approach was carried out in IMC, or instrument meteorological conditions... The aircraft joined the approach at 14 nautical miles DME, making a right turn to 250 degrees, which would be dead down the runway mm-hmm. at 25. They are, we've talked about this in the past, but numbered per your heading. compass yeah. directions, your heading. During the turn to, for final, the captain reduced the throttles to idle to help slow the airplane and follow the descent path. The first officer then advised the captain, quote, 12 DME looking for 4,000, end quote as the airplane was flying at 13 DME at 4,700 feet. So he's stating that 12 miles to the VOR on their DME, they should be at 4,000 feet. Right. They're currently at 13 13 miles and 4,700 feet. Oh, okay. So they're actually kind of on the right path. Yeah. Seems like it. Someone goofed up, though. Or we
2: wouldn't be here. That's right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Somebody did a goof.
1: Somebody did a goof. The first officer then advised the air traffic controller that they were... Quote, established inbound, end quote. Not really an official call, but they're just telling him, like, hey, we're on the approach. Just before reaching 12 DME, the captain called for the gear to be lowered. The first officer asked him to repeat the instruction because he didn't hear it, and he did so. The first officer then lowered the landing gear. The first officer then stated, quote, okay, selected and on profile 10. Sorry, hang on, 10 DME. We're looking for 4,000, aren't we? So... Fraction low.
0: Uh, wait a minute. Didn't he just say 4,000 for 12?
1: Yes. Hold on. And that's what what they're, yes. So that's why there's a little bit of confusion. What? So now they're at 12 DME. Okay. And now he's talking for 10, thinking they're on the profile. And he said they're looking for 4,000, so he thinks now they're a bit low for the profile is what he's saying. The captain responded, quote, check, and flaps 15, end quote. So he basically acknowledged what the first officer said and then asked for flaps 15. The first officer started to say, quote, actually, no, we're not 10 DME, we're, end quote. The captain whistled at that moment at the first officer and pointed, stating, quote, look at that. I don't want that, end quote. You don't want what? (laughs) What he was pointing at was the landing gear indication light. Oh, which showed that the nose gear and the left main gear were down and locked but the right main gear was not down and locked. Uh-oh.
0: Spaghettios.
1: Oh, spaghettios. The first officer responded, quote, "No, that's not good, is it?" So she's not <laughs> No, <locked>. no. <laughs> it turns out. So she's not locked. So alternate landing gear?" End quote. The captain acknowledged stating, quote, "Alternate extension, you want to grab the QRH?" And quote. The first officer responded, "Yes." And then the captain stated, "You want to whip through that one, see if we can get it out of the way before it's too late. End quote. So they are now aiming for the checklist to do an alternate gear extension process okay. checklist, and the captain's telling him hurry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the captain then stated, quote, "I'll keep an eye on the airplane while you're doing that." End quote. The first officer located his quick reference handbook and found the correct checklist: the quote, landing gear malfunction alternate gear extension checklist. Okay quite the name. He began reading the checklist from the first point on the list. At that moment, the sole flight attendant on board entered the cockpit to inform the crew that the right main gear was not down. Thank you. (laughs) We are well aware. The flight crew acknowledged this and the flight attendant thanked them and left the cockpit.
0: Well, at least, I mean, to be fair, I think it's good that someone said something.
1: Correct. This was actually within the company's policy and actually part of their CRM. Like, so hey, f-
0: just so you know, in case you weren't paying attention.
1: And it, it's unique to this airplane because of the fact that the landing gear hangs from the engines. Oh. So yeah, it, it doesn't can,
2: hang from the fuselage so it can or actually, the wings.
1: Right. So it can actually be seen from the passenger windows on the passenger cabin. So the flight attendant could see these Oh, I see. Okay. landing gear hanging, and one was not. <laughs> yeah. The captain then instructed the first officer to slip down the list a little to speed up the process, so just... Down. Yeah. Go down. At the time, this was within the company's policies for the captain to request a checklist be shortened or certain points be skipped. The first officer acknowledged and began reading again further down the checklist. He read through the checklist correctly until the point that read, quote, landing gear alternate release door, open fully and leave open, end quote. The first officer responded, which it is, as he opened the small door above his head. So there's a little tiny door above his head on the cockpit mm-hmm. that has a handle in it. mm He then continued, stating, quote, and insert this handle and operate until main gear locks, actually nose gear, end quote. The captain noticed that the first officer skipped a couple of points on the checklist and corrected him, stating, quote, you're supposed to pull the handle, end quote. Yeah, I'm like, it's (laughs) it's there, just pull it. You just pull it. You just pull it. The checklist points that were missed read, quote, main gear release handle, pull fully down. The handle.
0: Yes, I feel like there's a handle, You should pull it. (laughs) Right. It needs an action. He got there eventually for a reaction.
1: He got got there. And then landing gear alternate extension door open fully and leave open. End quote. Talk about that one later on. There's a really big reason why that's important. Not that it affected this, but there's a big reason that that's important. Oh, okay. The first officer acknowledged this mistake, pulling the handle above his head before stating, "Quote, yeah, that's pulled. Here we go." (laughs) At that moment the ground proximity warning system began sounding.
0: Oh no, no one's monitoring altitude! Terrain.
1: <laughs> terrain. Oh terrain.
0: no! <laughs> <laughs> oh no!
1: The captain immediately pushed the throttles forward and pulled back on the stick. About four and a half seconds later, after the alarm started, that is, the nose gear and the left main gear struck a hillside before uh-huh. before the airplane struck another hill, separating the right wing, uh-huh. and then the rest of the airplane struck a hillside, causing the tail and left wing to separate, uh-huh. and the fuselage to slide and break up. Oh uh-huh. When the airplane came to a stop, there was no immediate fire, though there were a couple of small ones, but it wasn't like a big... Huge explosion. Explosion boom. or anything. Okay. Survivors began finding their way out of the cabin. Some passengers had to assist others out of the wreckage. The air traffic controller lost contact with the airplane and did not have it on radar. They contacted emergency services, but... Only had a large, rough area, search area, to give them. I think they said it was like
2: 150 square
1: miles. Yeah, it's like a massive area. They were like, I don't know, they're somewhere here.
2: (laughs) Great. That's very much not helpful.
1: Yep. One of the passengers, however, had an early age cell phone.
2: Mind you, this is 1995. Yep. Called for help.
1: That was on and working. He called emergency services and told them to send everything they had because there was a crash, a plane crash. Like, Like He was like, yeah, they picked up and they were like, you need ambulance, fire, or police? And he's like, send everything.
0: Send everybody. <laughs> I need everything.
1: <laughs> everything. The person on the other end of the phone took down the passenger's phone number before telling him to wait and expect to call back. The phone operator then called the air traffic controller to inform them that, about a witness to the crash and gave them the phone number for that passenger or what he thought was a witness.
2: Not an actual passenger. Not
1: an actual passenger. Did you catch that?
2: Kind of. They thought that he w- was a witness...
1: So he's passing this phone number to the air traffic controller under the pretense that he thought he was a witness to the crash and not a passenger. No,
2: I was in said
1: crash. Yeah, exactly. So the air traffic controller then called that passenger, expecting a witness, but the passenger quickly corrected him. (laughs) No, I was a bloody passenger. I'm
0: a passenger. I crawled out of the fuselage.
1: Other passengers, other surviving passengers began looking for landmarks to help identify where they were. The aircraft had crashed in a large green open hillside with no distinguishing features in sight because they were also kind of in the clouds.
0: Oh, I was
2: going to ask about
1: that. There was literally like nothing around. Like there was no trees, nothing. They were just.
2: Oh, on a and it's freaking freezing outside right now?
1: Yep. Some passengers used part of the wreckage's shelter for the wind and the cold, which was enough to cause hypothermia. Ew. The passenger and the air traffic controller stayed on the phone for an extended period of time while waiting for a landmark.
2: Mind you, he had about an hour of battery left. Right.
1: Eventually, one of the passengers returned after crossing over a hill where he saw a large sheep pen on another side of the hill. He could describe a fence and the length, the rough length. When the passenger with the cell phone described this to the air traffic controller and that info was subsequently passed on to the search and rescue teams, one of the rescuers actually knew where this pen was. Oh, that's good. And sent the search team to the area. A short time later... While still on the phone, a helicopter located the wreckage and the survivors. He was able to, like, explain over the phone, like, yeah, there's a helicopter here now.
2: I mean, that's good.
1: Then they got off the phone.
2: Uh, This passenger was interviewed on the air disasters episode, just so you know.
1: That's where all of this is coming from, by the way. After rescue operations were completed, the flight attendant and two passengers were found to have been perished after the crash. So that was unfortunate, like, the sole flight attendant.
0: And the captain And and the first officer. No,
1: they survived. Oh. Two of the passengers, however, perished. Oh. While well, the flight crew and 12 passengers were seriously injured, including the man with the cell phone, who had a broken vertebrae. Oh, no! But yeah. was unaware of it until rescuers showed up because he had so much adrenaline.
2: Stop moving! It was Stop a, moving! It, yeah, it was a fractured yeah. lumbar vertebrae. Actually, in the report... Stop moving!
1: This was unique.
2: The report did something really interesting. I think because there were so few passengers, they actually graphed it out, like, seat by seat, what injuries everyone had.
1: Oh. I will add that three passengers were minorly or not injured at all.
2: Which is insane. That's unfortunate. One fatality was unrestrained.
1: So not wearing a seatbelt. The flight attendant.
2: Oh. He had a fractured lumbar spine and right shoulder.
1: The passenger with the cell phone.
2: Yep. There was crush injuries to fingers for another passenger, which just sounds really uncomfortable. Yep. A fractured ankle, minor facial injuries and neck strain, post-accident burns... Chest injuries, broken collarbones, right shoulder and ribs, mild concussion, spinal injury, fatal back and head injuries, chest injuries, broken angle and index finger, fatal injuries to the head, neck, and chest, neck and head injuries, right fractured ribs, bruising, fractured lumbar spine, and fractured femora, which means Ugh. both femurs.
1: Ooh, that sucks. Ow. The captain and first officer both hit their heads in the cockpit and were incapacitated for a period after the crash.
2: Yeah, I would, yeah. I believe the episode described it as severe head trauma. Yeah. That would be if you hit your head against the column.
1: Yeah, it was bad. It was, they couldn't even interview them because both of them were basically down for the count. mm There was no easy access to the wreckage site for recovery, so it was determined that the best way to remove it for investigative purposes was to have it airlifted by helicopter to a hangar nearby.
2: They took a 200-foot cable, strung it through the fuselage, and just picked it up. And
1: there's video of this. It's actually in the episode. If you're curious, you can go watch that in the air disasters episode. But they literally have the footage of the whole thing strung up by a string. The whole fuselage just picked up and then just placed it in front of a hangar. They used an old Russian helicopter, a very large one, to do all this. Well, that's a pretty good cue for me to stop, because that's the end of my part.
2: Okay, well, I realized that I was going on a tangent in my notes, and then I failed to wrap up the tangent, so I'm going to have to wing it at some point. Okay. We're doing real good here. Real good. So, this investigation was performed by the New Zealand Transport Accident Investigation Commission, with the assistance of the Canadian TSB, or BST if you're French. It's... Both are written on their jackets.
1: So this is one of the rare occasions that actually the Canadians were involved and not the U.S. or France. Because they were the manufacturer. Yep,
2: De Havilland the Havilland is in Canada.
1: Canadian. land.
2: Despite the severe damage to the interior of the cabin, of which we have an image. Yeah, that's pretty damaged.
1: How people survived that, to be honest, I'm pretty amazed.
2: You know, people uh, are resilient. So there's a picture. The overhead compartments all broke free. Yeah. From the ceiling. Shocker. I so. can't imagine why people anyway, ended up so injured. Despite the severe damage, both black boxes were found intact and were able to be read out by the Australian Transportation Safety Bureau. So they were involved too. Because, mm. you know, they're like next door. Yep. Investigators were able to determine some things on site before the wreckage was taken away. They did determine that the crew had a landing gear problem. Because they found contact marks in the mud for both the nose and left landing gears, but not any for the right landing gear. And both the landing gear lever was down and the alternate mechanism handle was pulled. So they knew they were trying to extend the right gear and failed to do so. Pretty early on the investigation to figure that out, so good f- good for them. Yep.
1: Because they really didn't have the resources that... Like, the crew had. Like, they didn't have the crew to interview. They didn't have the flight attendant who also knew about it. And right. your traffic controller had no clue. Right. So they figured that out all on their own. Good for
2: you. And uh, then they moved it. I also went into detail on that, but I'm not going to now. So investigators did something rather unique with this report. And I'm going to follow it because it's interesting. They worked backwards. They did. And I never do that, so we're going to. The first thing investigators analyzed was the length of the ground proximity warning system warning. You might have noticed I was a little bit, uh, short. Yeah. Yeah. The CVR proved that the warning did indeed go off, but it only gave the pilots four and a half seconds to react. Yeah, that's not enough. There are studies showing that the crew can react in as little as one second, but average reaction time to such a warning is five and a half seconds. Not to mention, you know, you gotta spool up the engines. Yeah, and that takes time.
1: Even if you respond within that second, that's That's too little. Too little time for that airplane to react.
0: Well, and this is before the enhanced Ground proximity warning system,
1: right? Not necessarily, but it wasn't on this airplane. Okay.
2: It actually wasn't required to even be equipped with the ground proximity warning system.
1: The fact that it was was a good thing.
2: Yep. Not that it did a whole whole lot. Not in this case. The flight data recorder did show that the crew reacted by pulling up on their column, thereby putting in an elevator input, but they did not advance their engine power. Investigators don't fault them for this, since the ground proximity warning system didn't give them enough time to react, and their engines wouldn't have spooled up in time anyway. The brevity of the warning made it impossible to clear rising terrain, even if they had done everything correctly and immediately. That was determined. Okay. This brings about the question of why that was so short. A quick simulation showed that based on the terrain profile of the area, it actually should have sounded for 17 seconds Which before would have been
1: impact. way more than enough.
2: So the ground proximity warning system works by using data... From the radio altimeter. This device emits a signal to the ground and times how long it takes for the signal to bounce back. Kind of like a bat or a dolphin using echolocation. Okay. If something went wrong with that radio altimeter, that may have delayed the ground proximity warning system from going off. Mm -hmm. But this is hard to investigate because that instrument is not recorded on the FDR. Well, that's unfortunate. Yay. A nearby radio tower quickly came under suspicion. Did its broadcast interfere with the radio altimeter, much like the 5G cell towers do today?
1: I can actually show you this tower. Have you seen it? No. It's at the top of the report. See it? Oh, I see it. <laughs> it's no wonder they were asking why. Oh, it's, it's right there. It's, it's literally right This is all the wreckage, there. and that's the tower. Yep. So I can understand why they might be looking into that.
2: Turns out, no, it would not interfere because the frequencies it was broadcasting are not the same as the radio altimeter.
0: Which should it be anyway?
2: Yeah, well, tell that to the 5G cellular network.
0: Listen, we won't won't get on that tangent until later, probably the post-episode, but they could have fixed that, and they didn't. Right.
2: So when I was writing my script, fun fact, I meant to answer why the ground proximity warning system didn't go off, and then I kind of went on a tangent and followed my tangent to the end of the note. So now I'm, uh, winging it.
1: And in any case... Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: So... Another suspicion that uh, occurred, I guess. The antenna for the radio altimeter has on it, do not paint. Did they paint it? Yes. However. Bruh. They painted it with a non-metallic paint.
0: So it shouldn't have done
2: anything. So it shouldn't have done anything.
0: But, but just in much case, much you probably shouldn't have painted it. It
1: still anything. wasn't a good
0: idea. Yes, you're right. It still wasn't a good <laughs> idea mean, to paint it. I I realize that it's non-metallic, but also it, maybe just don't do it anyway.
1: Ultimately, they determined this probably wasn't. The The issue. issue.
2: So part of the reason that I went off on the tangent is because the report never really gave a conclusion as to why.
1: And that's because they never figured out why. According according
2: to the air disasters episode, it was probably a software malfunction.
1: Hmm. They never determined why.
0: It would be hard
2: without actually
0: having the radio altimeter to actually know. I just gave you one of the findings.
1: So
2: is there anything the pilots might have done to inhibit the ground proximity warning system? Here's the tangent. (laughs) Actually, yes. Pilots approaching runway 25 had a history of getting nuisance warnings from the ground proximity warning system because of the hilly terrain, or as the investigators put it, undulating.
1: (laughs) I don't like that. I
2: don't like that either. (laughs) It's pretty bad. So, the airline had them lower the gear and extend the flaps earlier in the approach. Because the aircraft was configured for approach, it limited the circumstances in which the GPWS would go off. Okay. Investigators poo pooed this, saying that anything that reduces the efficacy of the ground proximity warning system, especially on a high terrain approach, should be avoided. Yeah. 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 The other justification the airline had for this approach method was that it reduced crew workload immediately prior to landing, but in so doing on this flight, it actually increased the crew's workload as they then had to deal with trying to get the landing gear to extend while on approach and trying to do it in time without having to go around. The ideal scenario would have been to extend the gear later in the approach and in the event of a failure, execute a missed approach and go into a holding pattern while trying to extend the gear. I mean, that makes sense. That brings us to the whole situation regarding... The landing gear. So, continuing to work backwards. Senior pilot said that the airline had a culture that promoted, quote, aborting the approach to resolve an abnormality whenever it was practical to do so, end quote.
0: I mean, that's a good thing, right? So, why didn't they do that?
2: But the written approach said that the captain had the discretion to decide whether to resolve while continuing the approach or to go into a holding pattern. There you go. Per airline procedure, he was not wrong in deciding to continue the approach. I mean,
0: they thought they had plenty of time to fix the problem, to be
2: fair. I mean, if they didn't mess up, yeah. Once it became clear that the landing gear had not extended, the captain asked the first officer to quote-unquote, whip out the QRH, see if we can get it out of the way before it's too late. As the first officer began going through it, the CBR revealed that the captain asked him to skip the first part of the alternate landing gear procedure and get to the quote-unquote actual applicable stuff. That's not why you have a checklist. He was actually entitled to do this per airline procedure.
1: Which is not great.
2: There's a checklist for a reason.
0: I agree. Like, I realize that if, I mean, if it's like a a semi-memory item, right? Like, you know the first couple things on the checklist, I'd understand that. But if you don't, just go
1: through the whole checklist just in case. I agree. And honestly, actually, the first officer probably did too.
2: In any case. But we don't know. Here is where we get to one of our favorite subjects crew resource management. Yeah. The captain explicitly said that he would be the pilot flying while the first officer executed the alternate landing gear procedure. But the captain then became preoccupied with helping the first officer and failed to notice that their altitude had dipped below what it should have been. Uh huh. He yeah. had a steeper descent rate and it was taking him below the advisory profile. According to company procedure, if the pilot monitoring had been assigned a quick reference handbook checklist, they are no longer required to continue monitoring the descent. And that is what happened here. When interviewed, the captain said he had been taught when he was a first officer that in such circumstances, the first officer should have still been monitoring. And as such, he was relying on the first officer to keep monitoring while trying to lower the gear. That's BS. I'm sorry. Especially That's after. not...
0: When you have to do... When you're preoccupied with figuring out what the hell's going on with an issue and you have a checklist, you're...
2: Doing the en- checklist.
0: Entirely engulfed with the checklist to try to figure out the problem. You are not going to try to do a whole bunch of other monitoring stuff on top of that. That's too much. Well,
1: and that's why, especially after he said, I will keep an eye on the airplane while you do that. That's a big indication to me that, like, really? He was handing off those duties to, like, let him just do the checklist. That's that's what he's telling him. So why should he expect anything else? Mm-hmm. Dude. And oh. in any case, in most airlines around the world, this has to be... How it's done. Because in real CRM, how else can you do that? If somebody's having to do those checklists, they can't also monitor. It's too much.
2: Yep. Now let's analyze that situation with the first officer. Why didn't the gear extend when doing the alternate procedure? Well, the procedure was written such that it enabled pilots to perform it without having previously rehearsed it, though they had during training. Partially. It was found that during training, they had never run through the full alternate checklist. Fun fact. However, in reading through it, investigators found that it would be fairly easy to skip steps in the procedure because there were lines close to each other with similar wording. Oh, don't do that. Making it easy to lose where you are in the sequence. Oh, so heck this is, yeah.
1: So this is what happened to the first officer, and I didn't explain this, but because the two checklists are next to each other, he started reading the wrong one, which is uh-huh. where he got to this handle thing, Before where he's like, he, he has to put the handle to. in. What he's talking about, he has to put the handle in, is in the... Floor of the cockpit between the two of them. There's a, a
2: pump handle.
1: Is a panel with a pump handle he has to attach and then crank for the nose gear should it be the problem.
0: Oh, I heard the nose gear thing that I right. was going to ask.
1: You caught that. Right. That's why. He read the wrong checklist, and then the f- captain corrected him back yep. to the other one, which is for the main gear. Which yes. is up above his head.
2: The steps in the checklist also weren't numbered. Come on.
0: I mean... All right, listen, as a person with the learning disability that would have issues reading a checklist like that without numbers, I would definitely have that problem.
1: We're staring at a QRH with number numbers. checklists. I yeah. feel like
0: that's just
2: self-explanatory.
1: Seems pretty simple, right?
2: This was evident when the first officer had already skipped ahead to the manual pump part of the procedure and not having yet pulled the handle from the ceiling to extend the gear. Right. By the time the first officer confirmed that the handle had been pulled, the ground proximity warning system went off. And then it was too late. And now for your regularly scheduled air disasters inaccuracy. (laughs) Excellent. The episode depicted that the first officer did not pull the handle far enough to actually lower the landing gear. Oh. But the damage to the landing gear system was actually too great to determine whether or not that was the case, according to the report. Oh. Okay. So I was reading the report. I'm like, they never mentioned that he didn't pull the handle far enough. And that's because they never determined one way or the other if that was the case. And I don't know why air disasters did that.
1: Right. And the... Yeah, in the report, they literally just—they—they state like they don't know. They can't prove that he didn't pull it all the way.
2: Also, the ground proximity warning system went off. Like,
1: it's not entirely wrong that he probably didn't, though, because there are two steps to pulling that handle. Like, you have to pull it through two, literally two physical steps. Oh, okay.
2: There's one detent that opens the door, and one that releases the gear. gear. Yeah. So they knew the door was open. Let's talk about why the gear didn't lower in the first place. Taking it all the way back to the beginning of this. This is actually going to be the hardest part to explain because the report doesn't have any pictures. Mm. Right. And the only depiction I could find was in the Air Disasters episode. The clip showing it is on YouTube, which we will have linked on our website. And I will send Miranda the link now because I didn't want to send it before recording. (laughs) I was afraid it would give it away. The latch for the landing gear is a slot with the opening facing aft. So, plane going that way? Slot. Okay. The slot holds the roller of the landing gear, and when the landing gear lever is selected to lower the gear, the slot rotates so that the roller falls aft and out of the slot and then allows the gear to fall into place. Makes sense. What investigators found on the right landing gear was that over time, that roller had worn a divot into the slot. Oh,
0: so they were resting in the divot.
2: Yep. Nestling a little spot there in the slot. That's why
0: it didn't go all the way. It didn't release...
2: And this was not the first time it had happened. Of
0: course not, because it
2: never is. The manufacturer had actually found this to be an ongoing problem with most Dash 8s. And so they had recommended that Dash 8 owners replace the latch with one made of a harder material, making it harder to wear an indent into it. According to the air disasters episode, the reason the left landing gear did extend was because it had already had the new part. ANSET was waiting to replace it on the right side. They needed a new part. They were waiting for maintenance, blah, 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 blah. They hadn't replaced it yet. Okay. But according to the report, ANSET had investigated if it was worth it to retrofit their fleet with the modified part, but decided against it. At which time investigators say they should have alerted their crews of the risk and to make sure they were trained and aware of the alternate gear extension method accordingly. So, another inaccuracy? Don't know whether or not the left one was replaced. Doesn't sound like it was. Okay. Okay. But I am reading here on the Wikipedia page that of the, like, 15 times this had happened on this plane, all but three were actually the left main landing gear. So.
0: I mean, you should still, if you know that it's a problem, you should still try to find a solution.
1: It had a service bulletin for it. That's and a
2: lot of landing gear failures.
1: It is, and this is a very simple fix. I mean... I shouldn't say that. The process to replace the part might take time, but the fix for it is simple because all they did it was make a, it. They made a stronger part. Yeah. They used a different material. So it doesn't, that doesn't have a divot. divot. Yeah. That's it. It was a simple fix.
2: And every time this had happened in the past, it had always been solved with the alternate landing gear system, which from what I understand, made that slot rotate more than just the hydraulic method. So it it dropped. It had to drop. Yeah. Okay. I'm not entirely sure if that's how it works because no one actually gave a full explanation. I'm just assuming that's how that works. So if I'm wrong, don't come for me. Uh, that
0: would make sense, though. I mean, if it's stuck in a divot and then it rotates too far for it to stay in the divot, it makes sense that it would yeah. drop the landing gear.
2: So that's all I got. It it's a this this one has layers. It's it's an onion <laughs> <laughs> or an ogre. Yeah. But I opened it from the inside out because I'm <laughs> a wackadoo. Anyway, there there's your changing it up for the analysis. Backward. Backward.
0: Alright, well, well, we'll take a short break. break, and break, break. we'll come back with the normal stuff. Let's do it. We're back. We're back.
1: Hello. Okay. We're going to do some findings and recommendations. Their findings are short-winded, but there's a lot of them. Oh.
2: Does that actually make them short-winded?
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't Compared know. to the NDSB, they would probably write just about as many, but they would be like three paragraphs each. Oh, hey, These are usually one to two sentences, at You're least. so
2: hyperbolic.
1: That's kind of how it works, though. Anyway... I still picked and chose what I wanted to oh, read out. Oh, good
2: God, there are a lot. There are a
1: lot. I still picked and chose what I wanted to read out, and there's, you know, some.
2: <laughs> some, he says.
1: I'm going to read quite a few, actually. but And then we'll do the causes and causal factors, which is in place of the
2: probable, probable cause.
1: cause, and it's a chunk.
2: You're a causal factor. So
1: I, I will read all of that out. But first, the findings. They found that although the captain and first officer were experienced pilots, the captain was not experienced as a captain, nor was the first officer experienced as a co-pilot in a two-pilot crew. They both had a lot of hours, and they didn't really explain this, but neither one of them had a lot of experience in a two-person crew. So they were just used to flying on their own? I guess. I don't know. So That's pretty much what they explained.
2: That wasn't even really in the analysis at No, all. it
1: really wasn't. However, this didn't really seem to affect their CRM too much, because their CRM wasn't that bad most of the time yeah but it wasn't great either nope
2: it was actually kind of terrible at the end
1: yes once they got to the checklist part yeah everything else was actually going pretty well up to that point
2: you know at the important part yep
1: there's kind of reasons for that though we'll get to that that's not necessarily their fault though the captain did get charged
2: with manslaughter
1: that case was dropped
2: you can't
1: it took six years though yeah he did have to leave the country and go fly somewhere else because nobody else wanted to hire him They found that the captain had completed the company's command training successfully, so the company had trained him to be a captain. But they're saying that he didn't have enough experience as a captain. They found that the failure of the undercarriage to extend normally, which occurred during the aircraft's instrument approach to Palmerston North, was probably due to the wear on the right main undercarriage uplock latch. Duh. They found that the extent of the wear of the uplock latch is determined... After the accident exceeded the Messier-Doughty limits, referred to in Temporary Revision SUP 383, to the manufacturer's maintenance program issued in November of 1994. So, all of seven months earlier. So the whole thing is that they had a temporary revision for this, and they had limits on how far this part could wear. And they determined that part on this airplane was well outside of that Hmm. limit.
2: Despite being allegedly inspected.
1: They found that the five month period, which elapsed before temporary revision SCP 383 was reviewed, was excessive, so the company didn't look at it for five months. They found that the wear on the right main undercarriage uplock latch would not have prevented the manual release system from operating, so they still should have been able to manually release the landing gear. They found that the operator's initial decision not to modify the aircraft's undercarriage should not have jeopardized the safety of the aircraft significantly. So, even though they chose not to replace the part, they still should have been able to perform a safe landing. Yes. Ultimately, this was really... This shouldn't have been a big deal, basically. It's the gist of that. The whole... Them having to manually extend the landing gear. Not really a big deal, actually. It should just be a... That's it. Basically. Pull the handle and down it goes. Should lock in place. Thanks, Gravity.
0: Thanks, Gravity.
1: And that's the end of the story. Then the airplane should land normally. Then they just have maintenance reset everything... Continue flying.
2: And really, they should have gone around to do that? Yep.
1: That's the primary thing. We'll talk about it, but that's really what the investigation determined was ultimately the cause. That's the reason that the captain really got charged with manslaughter is because he chose to continue yeah, the approach and force around. the situation rather than go around. We'll get there. We found that the operator did not take the optimum steps to ensure that the Dash 8 crews could deal with any malfunction of the undercarriage system safely and the light of the Dash 8 aircraft's history of the main undercarriage not extending normally. They knew this was an issue, and they still chose not to train the flight crews how to deal with this normally. They found that the necessity to lower the right main undercarriage using the alternate gear extension procedure should not have endangered the aircraft on its approach to Palmerston North. They found that the operator's QRH checklist need to be improved to ensure standardization in reference to similar procedures, and to avoid the potential for the reader to confuse similar nomenclature on lines in close proximity. That means the two checklists that he had right in front of him that were nearly identical. We'll talk about it, but there was two different names for those checklists, but they were so similar that it was very easy to mess that up. Yeah. And that's why I said that's actually really important when I was telling the story. Yeah. found that the captain had briefed for the instrument approach correctly and flew the approach track properly, all the way up until the moment he didn't basically. They found that the aircraft was allowed inadvertently to descend below the instrument approach profile and below step limits until the aircraft collided with high terrain. They didn't monitor and it crashed. They found that the captain did not apply sufficient engine power to intercept and maintain the approach profile during the latter stages of the instrument approach to Palmerston North Aerodrome. So they, he pulled the power all the way to flight idle and put the nose down so that the airplane would start descending on an approach path, but he didn't actually like fine tune the power and pitch angle to follow the approach path. He just let it descend, and then it descended too quickly, because they weren't paying attention. He found that the first officer was not performing his normal task of monitoring the instrument approach because he had been instructed to carry out the alternate gear extension procedure, and the captain had advised him that he would, quote, keep an eye on the aeroplane, end quote. They found that an alternative decision by the captain to discontinue the approach and climb the aircraft to a safe altitude to carry out the alternate gear extension procedure would have facilitated the crew's safe execution of the task. They found that the absence of a company standard operating procedure for the crew to discontinue an approach while they dealt with an abnormal situation may have influenced the captain's decision to implement the alternate gear extension procedure while continuing the approach. So the company also didn't train or give any procedure that when you have to deal with this kind of thing, you should probably just go around and get it handled before you try to do an approach. Yes, please. This is something that is actually standard in most airlines, even at the time, probably. But also today, where they say, oh, you have a gear problem? Discontinue your approach immediately.
0: Yeah, that way you have time to figure it out.
1: Right. At that point, you need to take the time to figure it out, because you're in a critical phase of flight anyways. Yeah. So that's just kind of a, duh, to me. But
2: I will say one advantage that this plane has over other planes, if this were to happen on another airplane type. Mm-hmm they would often have to circle around the tower and be like, hey, can you look at my landing gear?
1: Right, but no, they knew.
2: Yeah, you can see it from the Because <laughs> they couldn't see it. <laughs> which is kind of nice.
1: It is kind of nice.
2: It also just looks weird, though. Go look up a picture of a Dash 8 if you've never seen one. They look go, weird. Go
1: look at a picture of a Dash 8, and then go look at a picture, a picture, a cropped picture of a Dash 8, like looking at the nose without the engines of the main landing gear. It looks like it's just hovering on the nose gear. I love that picture. It's always, it's always fun. They found that the breakdown in monitoring the aircraft's altitude during the approach was contributed to by each pilot having a different understanding of his responsibilities in this respect in the event of an abnormal situation arising. I just feel like
0: that was the captain. Yes. Like, he thought that the first officer would still have
1: monitoring duties while he was doing a checklist. How
0: could he? Which, that just doesn't make sense. I
1: don't know why you
2: would think that. This
1: is a human factors thing, and this is a pretty simple human factor piece where it's like... You've now told him to do a test that's outside the normal and what he's got to do. And now this is going to consume
2: his time and his attention attention
1: entirely. So you cannot expect him like that. This just this doesn't even have to be a trained procedure. This should just be an understood. He's going to be busy. He's not going to monitor what you're doing, especially after you said, I'll keep an eye on the airplane.
2: Yeah, you took control. You took over monitoring duties.
1: Right. They found that although the aircraft was influenced by a significant downdraft During the approach, the resulting increase in its rate of descent could have been countered with the engine power available because they were at flight idle. You had the entire engine throttle or the distance that they could have countered a downdraft, but they weren't even really paying attention.
2: And I mean, it's not abnormal to have your engines at flight idle. No, it's not. Descent. It's not. So I don't think air disasters made that sound like it was a big problem.
1: It's not. And part of why he had it at flight idle is because in order to do the extension, they had to be below a certain speed. In they had order. to be
2: under 140 knots. Right.
1: And in order to be below 140 knots, they needed to be basically at flight idle in order to do that while in a descent. But they were in too steep of a descent and they could have reduced their speed sooner. They found that a pull-up maneuver was initiated before the collision, which lessened the severity of the aircraft's initial ground impact. And this is part of why, actually, the passenger that was interviewed in this and the same passenger with the cell phone said he never blamed the captain or the flight crew for any of this. Because the reality is, yes, there was a bunch of different mistakes that were made, but it could have been worse. If the captain hadn't even pulled back At the last second, like he did, they're saying that essentially this accident could have been way worse because it flattened the airplane, basically the underside of the airplane before it struck the hill rather than allowing it to go nose first. So it lessened what could have happened.
0: I know, but it shouldn't have happened to begin with. Correct. Like that's, that's what gets me. If he had been doing his job and not worrying about
1: the first officer dealing with the. This is one thing that everybody agrees on. Yeah. This is completely avoidable.
0: It was completely like, it didn't have to happen.
1: Right.
2: Did you say earlier that two passengers died and one crew died? Yes. There's four fatalities.
1: Not on the list, there's not.
2: On Wikipedia, there's four fatalities. Then two
1: people died later, because on their list, their injuries list, at the bottom of the history of flight, it only shows three.
2: It shows a total of four fatalities, including the flight attendant. Great. So someone must have died later, and he was charged with four counts of manslaughter. Great. Great. So
1: I don't know who the fourth person was then. They were not listed on the Just
2: report. FYI, y'all.
1: Anyways. They found that had the ground proximity warning system given the expected advance warning of collision, it was likely that this accident would have been avoided. So if they had that 17 exactly. seconds...
2: Hands down, this would have been avoided. They
1: would have not hit the hill. So this is where like they place a lot of blame on the captain, but also the ground proximity warning system is very much a piece of this too. They found that the ground proximity warning system warning was insufficient for the aircraft to be extricated from its perilous position. Basically the same thing. It's just they couldn't. There was no getting it out of the situation that it was in once the ground proximity warning system went off. It was too late.
2: No, it's amazing that they were able to lessen the blow, literally. Yep. Just with the time they had. Correct.
1: Correct. And right in line with that, they found that the cause of the ground proximity warning system failure to give adequate warning was not established. They don't know why. Yeah. They never figured it out. They then list for the next five points the different things that they think could have caused that, the same things we already discussed, so I'm not going into it. But the gist is they don't know. They couldn't prove it. Ground proximity warning system device was functioning normally when they pulled it out of the airplane. So they don't know.
2: The radio altimeter was functioning normally.
1: Moving on, they found that the air traffic control organization was not required, nor did it have the staff or equipment resources to monitor aircraft flight paths for adequate terrain clearance during instrument approaches. It's not their responsibility. It is does fall on the flying pilot. Yeah, this is always going to be the pilot flying's responsibility. However, it is a nice thing when you can have an air traffic controller that's paying attention to your altitude and knows when you're in an unsafe situation. But basically they're saying they didn't have the staff or the resources or the equipment for that. So right. it couldn't be expected. We found that the flight attendant's action in advising the pilots of the undercarriage failure to extend was in accordance with good CRM practice. Which is interesting.
2: Which is interesting because they also had an entire section in the analysis about cockpit sterility.
1: Yep. They do.
2: Because she technically broke sterile cockpit.
1: But she did it for a critical point of
2: flight. Yeah. It was and it was
0: part of their SOPs to do so.
1: Yes. They found that the key members of the operator's flight safety organization would have benefited from formal training in flight safety and accident prevention.
2: No, really?
1: The airline's safety operations team weren't trained. That's insane! They weren't trained for flight safety and accident avoidance. Then what were they supposed to do as a safety operations department? Exactly. Exactly. They found that the CAA at the time of the accident, or the Civil Aviation Authority, at the time of the accident was not staffed adequately to carry out competent auditing of all of the companies which it had approved. So, Ansett New Zealand. So that's a whole thing, too, where they're saying basically the Civil Aviation Authority wasn't doing any oversight. They weren't doing any auditing or oversight of the airlines. That's a whole thing. They found that the CAA's auditing might have detected weaknesses in the operator's procedures if it had carried out checks flights during its auditing in the period leading up to the accident. They found that the locations of the aircraft's first aid kits and fire extinguishers were not marked adequately for any potential user to locate them readily. That's bad. That actually came up because they do believe that one of the passengers that perished might have been able to be saved if a fire extinguisher was available. I don't understand that because I didn't hear anybody being burned alive.
2: No, there were
1: burns. Right. So they're saying that they believe they could have saved a passenger's life if they knew where the fire extinguishers were. That it was potential. Of course, you can't prove that. They found that the emergency services responded competently despite the adverse weather conditions and difficult access to the site. They found that the emergency locator transmitter's efficiency was reduced significantly by the loss of its aerial. The antenna on the ELT was broken, and therefore they couldn't hear the frequency coming from the airplane, so they couldn't find it. Hmm. This is a key thing when you're looking for airplanes that have been suspected to be in a crash somewhere. These ELT usually can help you find that quickly. We found that the location of the accident site might have been discovered some minutes earlier if the ELT's aerial had not been lost. So if the antenna wasn't broken, they might have been able to figure that out. That's it for findings. So now we're going to do this causal factors thing, which I will read if you would like.
2: I was ready. Oh,
1: if you want to read the causal factors and everything that comes with it, because it is the next page and a half.
2: I I was ready. Okay. Anyway. Okay. So the investigation identified the following causal factors. Here is the crew section. The captain did not ensure the aircraft's engine power was adjusted correctly for the aircraft to intercept and maintain the approach profile. The captain's lack of attention to and or misperception of the aircraft's altitude during the approach. The pilot's diversion from the primary task of flying the aircraft and ensuring its safety by their endeavors to correct an undercarriage malfunction. The captain's perseverance with his decision to attempt to get the undercarriage lowered without discontinuing the instrument approach in which he was engaged when the situation arose. The absence of a requirement for cross-monitoring of the aircraft's altitude while executing a QRH alternate gear extension procedure. The first officer not executing the QRH procedure in the correct sequence, which distracted the captain. Systems. The inadequate warning given by the ground proximity warning system. Contributory factors. Operator. Or airline. The operator not ensuring its pilots were aware of the recurring undercarriage malfunction. The limitations of the knowledge-based CRM training for Dash 8 pilots. The operator's QRH checklist for alternate gear extension, which held potential to be difficult to follow sequentially. The operator's requirement to configure the aircraft with undercarriage down earlier than normal on this approach. Weather. The existence of a significant orographic downdraft on the lee side of the ranges beneath the aircraft's flight path. Systems. The failure of the right undercarriage to extend normally when selected down and the CAA. The CAA's lack of audit staff to detect the weaknesses in the operator's standard operating procedures during its audits, as well as the absence of check flights by qualified CAA auditors to supplement their scheduled route checks.
1: Yep, all of those things they believe led to the cause of the crash. You might note that in the crew section, they called out the captain on, like, five out of those eight points. I think it was eight, six. They called him out on four out of the six. So... That said, one of them, they also tied in with the the co-pilot, but they really kind of felt heavily that the captain broke down the CRM in the cockpit toward the last moments of that accident. So really, that's why they believe that that was one of the biggest factors, but also I'm I like the fact that they threw in all the different things that also went wrong, other than just the crew. That it was also the GPWS, that it was also the failure of the landing gear, that it was also the failure of the well, operator to fix these things, and it was also the failure of auditing.
0: always say, it's it's always a host of things. Yes. It's never just one thing.
1: Rarely is it just one thing. You're right. We have had just Sometimes one thing before. Sometimes it
0: is just one thing.
1: <laughs> but rarely is it just but one thing. Rarely.
0: I mean, like, because... They weren't monitoring properly, but also they had this landing gear problem, and also the GPWS wasn't working correctly, so they didn't have enough time to react. Like it was all of that stuff combined together caused the airplane to crash. Correct. It wasn't just that the landing gear wouldn't come down, it wasn't just that the crew weren't paying attention. Right.
2: There were layers.
1: There were layers. Like an onion
2: or,
0: or an, an ogre. ogre.
1: That's right. So there are layers to the recommendations, oh too. God there's quite a few recommendations. They did something really interesting with their recommendations that I really, really like, and I'm not going to use. Okay. <laughs> what the hell? They list out all of their recommendations for, like, each section. So, for example, the first section is recommended to the chief executive officer of Ansett New Zealand. So, in other words, to ANSET New Zealand. These are the things we recommend changing. They subsequently follow that by what Ansett New Zealand responded by the time of the report they had changed. And then they go on to the next section of recommendations. So they actually follow on with the safety actions that did occur and I'm not going to dive into them because they are extensive. Mm. Where the safety recommendations for each section are a page or less, the actions that actually occurred tend to be about three to four to five pages. So I'm not diving into those, but I will go through the recommendations. They recommend to ensure that With immediate effect that each ANSET pilot assigned to crew a Dash 8 aircraft practice and remain familiar with the alternate gear extension procedure under suitably qualified supervision, and... They recommend issuing an interim instruction that unless overriding considerations prevail in the event of any system abnormality occurring during an instrument approach in the instrument meteorological conditions, the captain shall discontinue the approach and climb to or maintain a safe altitude until the appropriate procedures relating to the abnormality have been completed correctly. So just to that is they're really just saying that they should have a procedure in place where the captain has to go around. So the gist of that, yeah, really is just that they think that there should be a procedure in place to make sure that they're in a safe situation before they try to deal with a situation like they had. Beautiful. So go around. Yep. They recommend emphasizing to each of the company's pilots the potential for the pilot flying to be distracted from the routine operation of the aircraft during the execution of an emergency procedure or even a relatively minor system abnormality procedure, particularly if an unexpected need to give assistance with the procedure develops, i.e. you get distracted by the first officer making a mistake. So really they're just saying add a procedure in place, to, or even just notify the pilots, saying, if an abnormality occurs in flight or you have to deal with an emergency situation, consider your options for flying the airplane to take the load off of you while you're having to deal with such a situation. So they kind of get hand-in-hand with that in a moment, some added things they think should be done to make that happen. But we'll get there. They recommend reviewing the status of the flight safety coordinator to ensure the officer has a balanced input from the company's management operations and engineering staff on which to base an accident prevention program. If you're going to run a flight safety operation for an airline, you need to have everybody back you up to make sure that it is safe.
0: Also, just have a thing for preventing accidents. Trained. Like, trained to make sure your pilots understand how to do that. Right.
1: They recommend exploring ways of making Anset New Zealand's CRM training more realistic by use of flight simulators or otherwise. Which makes me question, did, did they, they never have them? Do they never run simulator training with two crew? Like, do they just throw them that, in an airplane? Yeah, yeah, that's just dumb. Be like, figure it out.
0: <laughs> I'm I'm gonna say this. I'm I'm not gonna be surprised if that was the case. Yep. Uh, It's it's sad, but uh, it would not surprise me.
1: Well, I will add now, because I was going to kind of save it for the end, but Ansett New Zealand is gone, as is Ansett, period. Ansett was an Australian airline. Ansett New Zealand was an offshoot of said airline, and they are long gone. We've talked about Ansett in the past, but this was nearing the end of Ansett's era, so they didn't last much longer, and much of this was pretty much unneeded. They recommend reviewing ANSET's QRH checklist for, quote, landing gear malfunction alternate gear extension and, quote, number two engine hydraulic pump caution light on with the hydraulic quantity below normal gear extension, end quote, with a view to standardizing the procedures where actions should be identical and eliminating the possibility for confusion between, quote, alternate release door, end quote, and, quote, alternate extension door, end quote. Yeah. During the reading of the checklist.
0: Which one functions as which one?
1: Right. One of those performs the function for the main landing gear, and one performs the function for the nose landing gear. So it's kind of important to understand which one's which and make that clear. Yep. Because if it's not clear in the checklist, then it is easy to get confused, hence the first officer did. They recommend taking immediate steps to embody the modifications designed to minimize nuisance warnings by the Dash 8 Ground Proximity Warning System. So... There are modifications that were put in place so that it wouldn't give you nuisance warnings, but also they're like, don't avoid it, <laughs> which is the next point. They recommend reviewing ANSET New Zealand's use of configuration procedures designed to obviate unwanted GPWS warnings. So just don't ignore them and don't try to prevent them using the airplane like
2: they exist for a they're reason. They're really
1: important and they really yeah. needed them in this case and instead they were configured in a way that may have caused them not to know soon enough. But that's a whole other thing because we don't know if that was the case. We recommend reviewing ANSET's practices of setting MDA once established on the approach with a view to implementing a procedure which will not set the MDA before it is safe to descend to the altitude. So MDA, what they're saying is basically making sure that that is your absolute minimum descent altitude for the weather given, which... I'm sure they had on this approach, which I'm sure would have kept them above the terrain. So part of that is, yes, you would have had to do a steeper descent after the fact, but this approach also called for at or above altitudes. So you can be above those altitudes. It's not required to do the step approach. So by setting the MDA, and should they have done that on the autopilot, they would have actually had the time to deal with the landing gear instead of trying to descend at the same time in a descent profile that they weren't paying attention to. Exactly. Exactly. They recommend exploring the practicality of connecting the radio altimeter output into the DFDR, the digital flight data recorder. Just seems It's like not
2: a, that hard, I swear.
1: Seems like a note, duh. That seems like a really important point you would want. They recommend investigating the practicability of using the radio altimeter to give backup warning during non-precision instrument approaches. So, using the radio altimeter to ensure that they are safe in newer systems... And using that as a backup warning to make sure that should all the other systems kind of fail and it alerts them too late that they would have had a way. But they recommend investigating the practicability of using the flight director and autopilot to alleviate the load on the pilot flying during non-precision instrument approaches in IMC. That's the part that really got me is he was hand flying this approach, which is the whole reason that they allowed it to get below the approach profile. Why weren't they using the autopilot? They were in instrument conditions, and they knew what to do. It was simple. Yeah. All you had to do was program in the altitude. You just monitor speed, and the airplane does exactly what you tell it to. Simple to you, Nick. I know. (laughs) Maybe to them. To me, if I'm in instrument conditions, I'm not going to want to hand-fly that, especially once you have to start dealing with the landing gear problem. They recommend initiating instructions to flight attendants that... One, are specific for each aircraft type which they operate. Two, enhance the concept of a sterile flight deck during critical phases of flight. And three, clarify the need for them to be seated as soon as practicable after the signal to do so is given. The two really important things in that, of course, are the sterile flight deck and the being seated once the signal has been given. The flight attendant was in neither of those conditions. She came into the cockpit and she was standing on impact. That's unfortunate.
0: Yeah, However, I don't know if... Like, her going into the cockpit, that it, was part of SOPs, because she...
1: Right. This was a non-factor, but it did change later. Dash 8, cruise, it does just that's all part of Sterile Cockpit around the world. Now, they just... Right. The flight attendant won't come in. Right.
0: you And now we have cockpit phones. They could have used right. the phone. Yeah. Yep,
1: that's the whole thing.
0: So, um, but back then, that was probably, you know, the culture of just going and saying, hey, this is happening.
1: Yep.
2: Uh,
0: and then... I mean, she wasn't seated probably because she didn't know where she didn't know where
1: they were on approach anyway. Right. She didn't know they were so close, and she was probably doing, I don't know, flight attendant functions. I don't know what that would be, but whatever it was.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't fault her for either of those things, Mm-mm. but also, yeah, try to make sure your crew is seated as soon as possible. Right. So they, if, if something does happen on landing that, you know, they don't get hurt.
1: Right. Now for something that might make you mad, and I've saved this kind of toward the oh, end good. here. <laughs> They recommend renegotiating the pilots' contract with New Zealand Airline Pilots Association to remove the condition which is intended to prevent the company from installing CVRs in their aircraft. What? The pilots' union had negotiated with the airlines to have the CVRs removed.
0: Okay.
2: No.
1: Listen, There was a CVR in this airplane. They hadn't gotten through with this entirely, but having this in their contract also allowed the union to try to fight having the CVR used.
0: The whole I, point you, uh, of a CVR is for you to realize if something does happen,
2: Well, and then what per- was occurring
0: in the cockpit when it was happening.
2: It's an investigative tool for the purposes of safety and prevention of accidents. And per the ICAO, these investigations are not to be done to place blame.
1: Right. And I think that's where, I mean, these pilot unions, they can't even do anything like that these days because this is a safety tool. It's non punitive and it cannot be used as a punitive thing, which is in their contract. It is in their contract that anything caught on the CVR cannot be used against them.
2: Okay, fine. I agree with that.
1: But it can be used as a training and a safety tool.
2: Yeah, as so it should be.
0: If they realize that, you know, pilots in general, I, not even just on this plane, but in general, are doing something they aren't supposed to in the cockpit right. via the CVR, right. they can use that as a learning opportunity. Right. Right? And train them correctly or retrain them on something so that that issue doesn't happen or a potential problem doesn't
1: happen in the future. Right.
0: You can't just say you can't have a CVR. That's not...
1: Yeah, that's just not a good idea. That's not
0: how this works.
1: (laughs) This is not a thing that's um, by any means in place these days. CVRs are required.
0: Essential. Yep. You actually can't fly. Right. Well, no, you can fly without one, right?
1: There are certain aircraft that you can, but anything over a certain number of seats, you have to have it. It mm. is an airworthiness piece. They have to have it. Two, the Director of Civil Aviation. They recommend taking urgent steps to complete... The review of the adequacy of the CAA audit staff numbers for carrying out safety audits on operators in accordance with their stated policy. Literally just making sure they have enough staff to actually do audits on their operators, the airlines that fly within New Zealand. Anything they oversee. I don't think I even have any more recommendations in here. Oh, cool. Ah, uh, One more. One more.
2: You lied to me.
1: I'm sorry I was close. Lies. They did many a, a recommendation. Uh, I guess, I guess I can read that one, too. So two more. Liar! they recommend, in conjunction with the aircraft manufacturer and the manufacturers of the ground proximity warning system and the radio altimeter, they promote a study to determine why the GPWS did not provide a greater degree of warning in the environment of the Dash 8 accident near Palmerston North, New Zealand, on the 9th of June 1995. And if it can be shown that the ground proximity warning system installation did not perform its intended function appropriately, take the necessary measures to validate the... Original certification is the Sunstrand Mark II GPWS installation on the Dash 8 aircraft. Figure out what went wrong with the GPWS. Fix it. That's basically that. And to the New Zealand Airline Pilots Association. Renegotiate as soon as practicable the pilots contract with the ANSET New Zealand to remove the condition which is intended to prevent ANSET New Zealand from installing cockpit voice recorders in the aircraft.
0: Yeah, so you so can't they, do that.
1: They recommended it to both the Pilots Association and the operator. Like, you can't do that. Right. Just don't. Don't do that. Just don't.
0: All right. That was Ansett New Zealand flight. I don't remember.
2: 703.
0: Thank you. We do have a listener question. Okay. It's from
2: Alan. Alan!
0: Alan! It's from episode not too long ago. It's flot Nord.
1: <laughs> I think <laughs> that was
0: 151. Yes. So... He says, more of a comment rather than a question. This is about the SOP and why the captain has to taxi the plane. So we talked about why is the captain having to taxi the plane, but the first officer is the one who takes off that whole This is the whole
1: back and forth. Like that whole thing about they required the captain to taxi the airplane while the... First officer then could fly the airplane once they well, were airborne. He ha- he gives us a reason. Continue. So
0: a lot of planes only have nose wheel steering tillers on the side of the plane kind of like an optional extra when the plane is purchased. That may explain why the pilot in command may have to taxi.
1: The SIC
0: may not be available to. And that
1: may, may, yes, that may absolutely be true. And in this case, they may have had it that way. They may have only purchased the airplane with a tiller on one side.
2: I didn't even know that was a thing.
1: You can also taxi an airplane with your feet. That is still a thing. But it is easier to do with the hand tiller. Yeah. It's literally just like a little tiny steering wheel on the side. Yeah. Most airplanes these days come equipped on both sides because it just makes sense. Yeah,
0: but that, I mean, I I don't remember when that even happened, 2006, 2009. Something like that. Something like that. Anyway, thanks for that comment. Actually, that's helpful. Yes, thank you.
2: (laughs) Thank Thank you. Lié for perspective. Yes. Yes.
0: Again, if you have any questions, we have a spot on the website where you can ask listener questions.
2: This is also a good spot to put corrections like that. Yes. Uh,
0: When, you know, or maybe we have a question and we don't understand why and we talk about it in the episode and you may have an answer. Like that? Yeah. That's helpful. It is. If you have that kind of stuff, we appreciate it. But also, if you guys want to know anything about us in general, I think we've said this before, but uh, like anything about us as people or whatever... You can ask it there as well. You don't have to ask about
1: episodes. You're a person. We also answer a lot of that stuff in the post episodes. We For do. those of you that really want to know.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you are a patron and you're not, you know, you don't want to be a patron, which for whatever reason. Fine,
2: okay? I guess.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's fine. Then we, we don't mind.
0: You can ask it and we'll answer you. If you are a patron, we usually have a lot of stuff about ourselves in the post episodes. Yes. Yes, we do. We're about to do. So. Yep. That's my usual plug for if you would like to see what's included with all of that, you may go and check out Patreon. You can type us in on Patreon. There's also a link to the page on the website just to see what all is included and all that stuff. So, but I think that's all for today. We hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week.
2: Keep your speed up.